this is another one of those things that I hear all the time. Therapy doesn't work for me. Okay. Tell me about your experience with therapy. I tried this therapist and he was a real asshole. So <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if I can say that on your show, but <laughs> of course, yeah. <laughs> so then people write off all therapy because they had one bad therapist. That's the worst thing you can possibly do because no, there's know, almost as many different types of therapy as there are therapists. Welcome to the Bronovo Podcast, the podcast that models healthy communication for men, empowering them to start the journey of self-work. Now here's your host, Thomas Pierce. Welcome, friends, to this week's episode of the podcast. My guest this week is Mark Hennick. Mark is an internationally recognized mental health strategist, advocate, speaker, podcaster, and media commentator. His TEDx talk has over six and a half million views, and it is easy to see why once we get into it here. He has a lot of great insights and a lot of practical information about how you can improve and address your own mental health right now, and some interesting mindset shifts that you can try out for yourself. He has a new book out called So-Called Normal, a memoir of family, depression, and resilience. Thanks so much to Mark for coming on the show. I really enjoyed our conversation, and I know you will too. Enjoy the show. Morning, Mark. How you doing, man? Good morning. I'm well. How are you? Good. Yeah, yeah. It's all good. We we uh, came through a technical jungle here to get connected, but we're up and running, so it's we all good. We figured it out. We're we're resilient, which is kind of, the, kind of the whole point. My that's my whole shtick. <laughs> yeah, totally, man. So you have a new book out called So Called Normal. Um, so I'm really excited to to hear about it and how you developed it. But for the people who are just familiarizing themselves with you. Can you give us a little introduction, please? Sure. Well, I mean, I'm a mental health advocate and activist, but really everything that I do is anchored in my own personal experience with mental illness, with struggling with depression and anxiety as a teenager, with multiple suicide attempts. Uh, I was in and out of hospital more than half a dozen times. I tried cocktails of medications. Uh, and it wasn't until I felt like I had reached the end of uh, the end of my journey, what I thought was the end of my journey, uh, and what ended up being my last suicide attempt, when a complete stranger pulled me off of the edge of a bridge. Uh, and from there, I went on to very gradually, and, and I'm sure in a very messy way, find my own path to recovery, uh, until eventually I was able to, uh, many years later, finally find that stranger uh, who saved my life, to show him everything that I had built from that point uh, and to thank him. So that that's really what I orient. That's the story that I tell in the TED talk that I did a few years ago. That's the story of the book, really what led to, uh, up to my struggle and what happened after. Uh, and then, you know, what I've been doing with it in the interim. Awesome, man. Well, I'm happy you made it too. That's cool. Do you have a relationship with this person now? Yeah. So, you know, for the longest time, you know, it's, it's not a usual way to meet somebody, right? When you're on the wrong <laughs> side of a railing and, uh, and he pulls you off. But um, for years, I never really fully appreciated him at all. I never really actually even thought of him because of the way that, you know, my mind was so distorted uh, by, uh, by the end. I didn't really trust uh, any of my thoughts or feelings if they were real. So I didn't even know if he was a real person. And then when I found out that he was, 
uh, that his name was Mike, because uh, I didn't even know his name uh, for that whole journey. Uh, it suddenly made it all kind of fit together for me. It, it came full circle for me. And I got to introduce him to my family and, and talk to him about my work. And since then, we've actually uh, met in person a number of times. We've done a, a number of media uh, type interviews together. Uh, and he's really become uh, uh, somebody that I always look forward to reconnecting with. So it's such a gift to be able to to still uh, get in touch with him. Totally. Wow, man. What a what a process to go from that point. And, and I, don't know, I guess a lot of people go public, if you will, with, with their mental health stories or, or use it as an advocacy tool. But it seems like you've kind of taken it a step further into creating a business and creating a brand a little bit around yourself. So well, how does that... And, 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 you know, I think though, because I think about that sometimes, um, mm-hmm. and, and there are two tracks or two, two lines of thinking on it. One was that when I first started doing this back in the early 2000s, n- nobody was really doing it. Uh, and I wished that there had been more voices out there of people speaking openly about their experiences. I mean, the, the, the highest quality m- public mental health awareness we got was when Kurt Cobain killed himself. Uh, and it was wall-to-wall coverage uh, about suicide, which actually, of course didn't end up being particularly helpful because it was sensationalist. It was uh, not very well informed by data. There was, there was rarely any uh, reference to, to mental health resources. Uh, so it ended up not being a very constructive way to talk about mental health and suicide. Now, many years later, and, and I'm fortunate to have been, I think, played a, to have played a small part in it, there's lots that we we're able to comfortably name rattle off a list of celebrities and and uh, other people who have talked openly about their their personal experience with, with mental illness. So I, I never really lose sight of how far we've come uh, in a relatively short period of time. Uh, and on the other side of it, I mean, you know, I do this like you you mentioned. This is this is my business. This is my work. But it grew out of a. Uh, personal place for me. And also it's that I don't really know how to do anything else. I'm kind of a one trick pony. This is, I, I have one <laughs> skill set and it's talking about mental health. Uh, so, you know, that that's a good thing because for the longest time I treated that as a liability in myself, right? I'm not good at anything. Well, no, mm-hmm. it's that I actually built a passion in my life uh, that I don't want to do anything else. This is all I really care about uh, in, in terms of my my professional life. So, you know, I, I think it's a, it's a net good for me that, that I've been able to turn totally. this into a work. Oh, dude, it's a creative path and it's something that is still super needed, right? Because I feel those of us who are in and around this space and think about mental health and ask our friends, how are you doing really? You know, it's more commonplace perhaps, but there are a lot of people who grow up in environments where they can't talk about their problems or they're not, you know, they don't feel comfortable saying, you know, this is really bothering me. And they don't even know, like, like I'm sure everyone who goes down that path of attempting their lives, you know, doesn't know potentially how to handle those feelings and, you know, structures to apply to it, to take it, you know, from being something that is totally foreign to something that, okay, maybe I'm feeling this and it's really scary and confusing, but I know that, this is a thing that happens to people and that there are ways I can get through this, you know? So yeah, yeah it's, that was entirely the case for me too. You know, I didn't grow mm-hmm. up in a, in a family where it was normal uh, to talk about our, our mental health. It, it's not that, 
it was necessarily um, forbidden, although it was in, in part of my upbringing. You know, I, I moved into a house uh, after my father left and my mother met somebody else. I moved into in with a man uh, where we were surrounded by this culture of toxic masculinity. It was just you had to man up and, and suck it up and boys don't cry and all this kind of stuff. So in that context, it was actively discouraged to speak openly about uh, mental health. We didn't even have the words for it. But generally speaking, I would say it just wasn't normal. It just wasn't the usual way that people talked. It made people a little uncomfortable. So we just didn't. And because we all, you know, I think it's human nature to want to fit in and to not want to uh, have other people see you as weird or different or, or worse, some of the more stigmatizing ideas of, you know, violent or unpredictable, these other untruths that are out there. Uh, so you hide it. You learn to be, become a good actor. You learn to um, toughen up. Um, you know, I was raised uh, Irish Catholic uh, or a strain of a, Can- a Newfoundland Canadian version of Irish Catholic, I guess, um, <laughs> in which case, in which there's this, I, I think anyway, very common idea that the world's going to break your heart. So you got to toughen up and life is hard and it builds character and all this kind of stuff. So it's, it's partly a cultural thing too, I think. So mm-hmm. I, I guess you just, I don't know, you, 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 even if you're a bit of a contrary and you still want to fit in and sometimes fitting in means not being openly yourself. Totally. What do you think of that toughen up the world isn't fair mindset? You know, do you see any value in that or do you see it as purely dysfunctional and more unproductive? You know, it's funny you ask that, actually, because I've been thinking a lot about not only this question, but stigma as well. And some of the ideas that we readily accept uh, and acknowledge are uh, stigmatizing against uh, people with mental illnesses. And it's it's delicate to talk about, particularly in a, um, you know, I, I consider myself pretty progressive, probably more than most. But we do, I have to acknowledge, we do live in a bit of an ultra-woke kind of culture. So (laughs) it's difficult to say, you know, there might be something to that stigma. But I think in some ways, some of these these issues are worth interrogating. You know, this idea of grit, I think, that comes from what, what I characterize as Irish Catholic upbringing, but I'm sure it applies to many different religions, many different cultures. But this idea that there's redemption in suffering. This is a very classically kind of cultural Catholic idea, um, among others. It's a very classically Irish idea, I think. Um, I think there actually <laughs> is something to that, you know, that that um, you do build character through struggle, that you don't become resilient by reading about resilience uh, or about or, or necessarily even by having a perfect life. That, I guess I'm just justifying my own (laughs) imperfect life. But resilience takes exercise, that you learn to get up by falling. You learn to have a bit of a thicker skin, uh, so you're not as hypersensitive to everything around you by being exposed to things that you need to deal with. So, you know, I I think there is something uh, at the core of that, but the net, I will qualify that the net application of those kinds of ideas tends to be harmful. It does tend to be destructive because people aren't approaching it with that kind of, well, you know, pieces of it are good, but pieces of it might not be. Generally, it's just a blanket kind of application and it's not really uh, discussed in a critical way. Agreed. It's a, it's a proportion and a ratio that needs to be figured out for everyone maybe. And I think the, the blanket application of, of not having that is also dysfunctional. Yeah. You know, that's the classic, 
East Coast, West Coast. So I'm I'm from Philadelphia. So pretty similar, probably culturally, you know, a little further south of <laughs> of uh, Newfoundland, but that part of the world. And coming out to the West Coast, it's the kind of constant friction between the East Coast and West Coast styles. And I talk about it all the time with my friends who also have moved here because as opposed to the East Coast, which was so much more direct and confrontational, the West Coast is more polite, perhaps, or just mm. passive aggressive, you know, more conflict avoidant, but also more likely to say something kind of passive aggressive. Right. And then yeah. in the South and the States, the this is the stereotype. I'm not, I'll love to have some, some Southern listeners validate this, but very polite culture, but the manners are just part of the culture. It's not necessarily right. genuine. It's kind of just like breathing. It's just being polite and saying the words, the formalities are part of what's expected. It doesn't mean the person actually respects you particularly. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's actually, there's an element of that on the East coast uh, in, uh, you know, Nova Scotia, Newfoundland, the East coast of Canada, very unlike uh, New York, for example, where you know, what's on people's minds. <laughs> I'm going to tell you. Um, but on the East coast of Canada, you know, visitors always come in and say, Oh, everybody's so nice. They're so hospitable. Uh, so polite, all that stuff. And I think that is all true, but there's an element of it too, that you're supposed to act that way for visitors, right? And that, and that you know that the day to day life is a little bit different, actually, that there tends to be a general rejection uh, of anything different uh, or anybody different, that there's a strong uh, central tendency that you're, everybody's supposed to kind of be the same way that there's not not as much tolerance for diversity i think and this is always this is always different in places where there are there is more diversity you know in bigger urban centers halifax for example on the east coast there's a bit more diversity uh, so i think it's it our beliefs are structured by our surroundings and by the things that we're exposed to and i think that that's how we have been so successful in changing the conversation about mental health is that we're putting people's stories out there first and we know that contact, what's called contact-based education, instead of just giving people a bunch of statistics and theories and academic conversations, you're actually showing people and introducing people to others who have been there. That's what changes people's minds because it shows them, oh, that person has a mental illness and they're not currently killing me. You know, they're, they're not this violent criminal. They actually are kind of a nice guy and they do seem normal and just like me. Right. You know, this right. comes as a surprise to some. You seem so normal. Yeah, because I am. I'm just like you. And that that isn't because oh. I've learned how to play the game, although I think that's part of it, too. <laughs> As a neurodiverse person, I think I have learned a little bit of how I'm supposed to act. Um, but it's also because... Um, you are not as uh, mainstream as you think you are, that mm. you actually can struggle with all the same things that I've struggled with too, if given the right circumstances. So right. I think that's that's really the key that we have to communicate to people. I like that. So two questions on that. One, you know, if you could distill down one lesson for the listeners or something essential that you've learned about this whole process of survival, essentially, for the for the audience, what would it be? And two, you mentioned this topic of neurodiversity. So could you explain that a little bit too, please? Well, let me start there only for the reason that it's the more recent question that you asked me, and I'm probably going to forget the other one. So you'll have to remind me. Sounds good. Uh, <laughs> that's part of my neurodiversity. I think. Now, um, 
<laughs> you know, everybody's brain works a little bit differently, you know, structurally and chemically and genetically, our brains are all almost identical. In fact, we share a significant portion of our genes with bananas uh, and with, you know, most living things are, are by and large pretty similar, but where, where differences happen, where the diversity happens at the neurological level is almost entirely experiential. It's how things connect, uh, how the networks uh, in our mind uh, connect and wire uh, so that the processes that we use, the patterns that we use to think are like fingerprints. The connectivity in all of our brains is like a fingerprint in many ways in terms of how unique it is. What that means is then that how I think through a problem and how you think through a problem are probably going to be different. So neurodiversity, I don't think, in my opinion anyway, is restricted to the extremes of the spectrum. You know, as somebody who has autism, for example, or somebody who is two or three standard deviations away from the so-called norm in the middle, uh, that we're all neurodiverse in some way or another, that we all think through things differently. We all process the world differently. And some of us just have more obvious differences in that respect than others. I would apply this as well to creative people uh, versus more analytical people. There's, there's reasons for that. It's not just merely a left brain, right brain kind of thing that that science I think has been dumbed down a bit over, over the years, but I think it is a difference in processing uh, that sometimes you're not going to be able to understand. And I think that's the important thing here is that you're not necessarily going to be able to see the world through somebody else's eyes. Um, it's good to try because that's empathy, right? To try to see the world through somebody else's experience. But at the very least, if we can create space for the discomfort of not knowing, I think that should be the goal. I might not be able to see the world your way. That's okay. I don't have to. I don't have to assert my view as the right one either. We can leave that uncertain space open in the middle. Uh, and that's where the cool creative action happens. I think that's where we need to do a better job rather than trying to force our uh, neuro outlook on the world is to appreciate that my view of the world is mine. And it, I'm going to have similarities with others. I'm going to have differences with others. And that's okay, too. I think we need to be able to, to uh, allow for that uncertainty in the middle. Agreed. That's a nice way to approach building bridges culturally too. I don't know how it is in Canada, but a bit of a culture war going on in the U.S. right now as far as political beliefs that then spill over into every other aspect of people's identities. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. yeah, and we're way, we're currently in the middle. I don't know when you're going to be posting this episode, but we're currently in the middle of a federal election here in Canada. So it, you know, it tends to be a, a bit more emphasized. Uh, and certainly the pandemic has emphasized political divisions uh, in a way that I don't think anybody was or a lot of people weren't really expecting because this shouldn't be political. But anyway, but, you know, I, I think it, it's uh, it's less stark. The difference is less stark in Canada than it is in the U.S., I think, at least according to my reading of the media. Uh, but it definitely still exists here, too. OK, awesome. So back to the the takeaway for the for the audience. Right. I, I recently. Hmm. I've been thinking about how do I, you know, create value for the audience in that that line of thinking. So, you know, for for anyone listening who may have their own, say they have their own mental health struggles and they don't understand it or they're scared by it, or they have a loved one who's struggling and they don't know how to help them, mm. go down the line. This touches all of our lives in some ways. What would you what would you say to someone as a good first step to opening themselves up to this? awareness and and how does one begin the journey to start to take care of themselves and, and mind their mind if you will yeah good question you know 
I hope this doesn't sound too esoteric or, or fluffy, but in my view, um, certainty is the death of growth. Uh, that as soon as you become absolutely certain that the world is the way that you believe that it is, uh, or that whatever you're experiencing right now means that this will happen next, you know, as soon as you start making certain conclusions about inherently uncertain situations, then you're already blocking off so many options for recovery. You know, I see this all the time with people who are struggling. They've tried three medications or five medications or 12 medications. I've tried everything. No, you've tried medication. That's what you've tried. And there are almost infinite (laughs) ways to recovery outside of that. But as soon as we start closing down options, and this is exactly what I experienced in my all of my more than half a dozen suicide attempts was this progressive shrinking. Uh, I, I, the, one of the concepts in my TED talk that caught on the most was this idea of the cognitive collapse uh, or this perceptual collapse where you become rigid and dark and tight and closed, and you can't actually get to that uncertain place outside you. Now, that's an evolutionarily adaptive thing. Um, as you become threatened, you bear down, you focus in to preserve yourself. That's normal. But you have to be, and this is where the bravery, I think, comes in, you have to be willing to reach outside that and to try things, not only that that you're uncertain that they will work, but even if you actively think that they won't. <laughs> because when you uh, have depression, when you have anxiety, I use those two because they're the most common, but any variation of a mental illness, it, your mind lies to you. And you can trust and you should trust some things that you think. But don't trust everything you think, because thoughts are just data points. Feelings are not facts. They're just information that comes up. It might be meaningless. It might, in fact, be untrue. So I think we need to then not just take everything at face value. Don't just assume that the way you are now is the way you will always be, especially if how you are now is hopeless and helpless, uh, but rather to allow that space to let yourself breathe, to realize that this might not actually last forever, that I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. I actually can't read that person's mind. And maybe they're not as judgmental (laughs) of me as I think they are. Maybe they are. That's okay, too. That's their problem. But so I guess what I would suggest then is to allow for that uncertainty, allow for that space. And in that space, uh, as Viktor Frankl said, is your power. Frankl, legend. (laughs) Indeed. Man's search for meaning. Yeah, actually. Great book. I was just thinking about that book. Awesome, man. So I, I like that. So you're saying to let it be and accept, yeah, accept the uncertainty and, and not try to script out one's life. So I guess to work backwards from your answer, the implication is that we can get stuck or we can trap ourselves in a bad situation by running with the expectation that this life is scripted or this life can be, can be planned, right? If If letting go of the planning is, is the path to freedom, then the plan itself is is this is the issue or the the attempt to script what's going to happen next is the issue. I think I think that's true. And I think that so much of our suffering comes from our clinging to the script that we've decided upon. Uh, despite all of the evidence to the fact that maybe this isn't the way it's going to be. Maybe this isn't the way that life is going to play out the way that I want it to. Uh, so then the problem becomes changing our wanting, not changing the world. <laughs> you know, sometimes we, there, mm-hmm. it's, like, it's, it's cliche to say that changing the world starts with changing yourself. 
but I think that there's something really to that. Um, totally. That's not just to say to to lay back and take everything. We have to have we have to take active steps towards shaping the life that we want. No question. Uh, we need to push ourselves to do things that are uncomfortable and not just accept the way things are. So I'm not saying I'm not advocating for passivity at all. Uh, what I'm advocating for is a is a flexibility, a growth mindset, uh, wherein you you um, push certain buttons, you lean in certain directions, uh, but also you know, listen to the world around you. Don't just assume that because something isn't working, that it's unworkable uh, or, or mm, nice. that the way that you're currently approaching something is the only way to do it. Get creative. Totally. How do you evaluate the right fit for a therapist when you have a therapist and for the people listening, how can they f- figure out, is this, is this person serving me? That's a really good question because, you know, every couple of, uh, I, I, it happens to me just out of necessity less frequently now, but I go in for therapy every now and then just for a bit of a, a mental tune up. Uh, and over the last many years, whenever I do so, I always interview three to five therapists just to see what the fit is. Uh, and that arose from, uh, an initial for many years knowledge or, or lack of knowledge that I could do that. I thought you just, you all therapists were the right. same. You call up a therapist and, you know, this is another one of those things that I hear all the time. Therapy doesn't work for me. Okay. Tell me about your experience with therapy. I tried this therapist and he was a real asshole. So <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if I can say that on your show, but <laughs> of course, yeah. <laughs> so then people write off all therapy because they had one bad therapist. That's the worst thing you can possibly do because no, there's know, almost as many different types of therapy as there are therapists. Um, but also recognizing that it's not in many jurisdictions, although it's getting better, it's not a really well-regulated field at all. There's a lot of quackery out there in, in the psychotherapy world, but there's some real gems and there are some real, uh, there's a lot actually of really evidence-based practices uh, out there that work, that work be- as well as or better than medication if you're getting it the way that it's supposed to be delivered. Um, so that's where I often start. I, I do Well, I do two things. First, I just go by how it feels. And I'm not looking for someone that I necessarily like. Whether I like them or not doesn't really matter much to me. Um, right. But what matters more to me is if, if it feels good, you know, if it feels like a natural fit, if they're conversational, some therapists are really awkward or really, and it, and it's just the, the conversation doesn't flow well. Others, you know, they might be judgmental toward who you are, depending on who you are. So you want to be sensitive to that. What you don't want to do, though, is just because somebody says something that makes you uncomfortable or, you know, challenges you in a way, you don't want to avoid challenge. Your therapist needs to challenge you. Therapy is work. And you need to do the work and you need somebody who can challenge you in a supportive non-judgmental way. And if and if you are feeling judged or unfairly, you need to be able to feel comfortable to talk about that with your therapist because that's where the real action of therapy happens. So first for me is just the the feel uh, on the surface. Uh, and the second for me is the actual evidence. Are they are they engaging in evidence-based practice or are we just doing kind of a lot of woo-woo stuff that isn't, in my opinion, uh, really going to do anything, you know? Yeah. Um, I think that's so important because there's a reason that billions of dollars and thousands of uh, psychologists and, and therapists uh, have done great research over the last 50 to 100 years to see what works and what doesn't. Uh, and there are some practices out there that don't work uh, or, or uh, even worse in some ways, just don't do, don't do anything uh, or do harm. Uh, so I want to know, 
what their therapeutic approach is, what skill, what their training is, um, how we're going to measure progress. You know, are we going to just talk every week and see how it feels? Or are we actually going to take data points along the way to see what the actual change is? I tend toward a more uh, analytical approach in that way. I want to be able to see that we're actually doing something uh, rather than just having an open-ended uh, friendship. That's not, I'm not looking for a rent-a-friend. Uh, I'm looking to do the work. <laughs> so those are my two things. I go on intuition. Do I like you? Uh, and I go on credentials. Can you actually do what I'm paying you to do? Yeah, that's, that's wonderful. Make them work for you. Yeah. That's what I tell. I mean, that's what how I approach my relationship with my superiors at work, like my boss. Like make them work for me. Yeah. It's their job to develop me. Yeah. You know, and again, it's obviously again, it's, it, it's this, this, I feel like this mindset can be applied to a lot of relationships. Cause again, it's my job to develop myself at work. For example, right. I have to do the work. As you said, no manager can just wave a wand and make me progress professionally. Yeah. But a good manager is going to have the skill set, the expertise and the time management to make time to develop me. So, yes. I love that approach. And this analytical piece is something that I try to incorporate more into my life because I'm I'm more on the touchy-feely side, I would say. I'm getting much better at discerning through statements. Like, for example, last week we had a relationship coach on and she said, and 77% of our clients, you know, they found the one. And I was like, okay, how big is your data set? Yeah. Because what does that even mean? You know, <laughs> and it was funny because I definitely don't, I didn't mean it to be rude. You know, I, I appreciate this person being on my show and I want to support her and have her share her expertise. But it's just my automatic reaction is like, okay, if you're going to say that, what what does that mean? Yeah. And so for you, this analytical mindset, was this something that was innate in you or did you develop it? And how can someone develop that that mindset? You know, I think for me, it actually came, uh, and I think this is true for, for every part of our minds. For me, it came out of necessity. It came from a few places. And I think of, you know, having an analytical mindset, you spend a lot of time trying to figure out where the heck did that come from? Uh, and I, and I think that. Uh, for me, it came from an avoidant uh, attachment pattern. Uh, mm. t- typically, people who don't have a lot of guidance as kids with primary caregivers, uh, they uh, adopt the mindset um, uh, if you want it done right, you do it yourself. They become perfectionists. They become the ones who need to become self reliant. Um, they tend to grow up in uh, um, uh, disentangled or, or very independent kind of environments. They become scrappy. Um, this was all my, you know, I was a latchkey kid where I'd come home and you just let yourself into the house because nobody was home. So I think that's part of where it comes from is that you need to learn to think things through uh, in a very analytical way. Also very common with people who who have uh, an experience of trauma. Uh, You learn to dissociate. I experienced dissociation when I was a kid because I experienced a variety of traumas, uh, both self-inflicted and and inflicted upon me. Uh, So you become intellectual uh, because it's easier. It's not as scary. It's not as emotional, right? Um, And then it was much later in my life that I started to build out the other side of me, the emotional or the the heart center, the the unstructured piece. Because one of the greatest antidotes to, I think, balancing the equation of perfectionism, uh, balancing that kind of uh, avoidant personality type is unstructured emotional experiences, going to... um, Uh, listening to a piece of music that really moves you and letting it move you and recognizing that you're still safe 
that you're going to be just fine. You might cry, you might get emotional, but you're going to be okay. That is one of the most healing things that that an avoidant person can do, uh, I think, because it really Mm. helps to round you out. So now I find myself in this place where I still have an extremely analytical mind and, uh, um, I, I think partly because I'm a skeptic, uh, I'm very data-driven, uh, I enjoy education, and I think all of those things have instilled that in me. Um, but also, I've uh, accepted and, in fact, developed uh, my emotional side as well. So I don't know what other people experience, if they tend to be more integrated between these two sides of their personality or not. For me, I feel big things and I think big things. They're not super well integrated. I think they're kind of two parallel tracks, um, but I cultivate them both inside me. Awesome, man. So I'm I'm hearing, sensing that, you know, you've come through the the dark tunnel, so to say, you're on the other side. You're doing well professionally. You're taking care of yourself. You're grounded. You know where you're going. You have a strategy. So how do you approach self-improvement now that you're out of the crisis era, if you will? I mean, for me, I I have to constantly be doing some sort of improvement, uh, self-improvement that is. And even if even if rest is a part of that, because sometimes people don't recognize that sometimes you just need to slow down and rest, um, that that's part of your recovery. Uh, anybody who does is physically fit or, you know, works out or practices anything. Um, if you want to make big advancements in your learning or your training or whatever it is, you have to have rest periods, uh, to integrate that learning and to, and to recover, um, that, that build that you're, that you're trying to do. So rest is a part of it. But for me, um, you know, when the pandemic uh, first hit back in March of 2020, I, I uh, lost a lot of the work uh, that I had been building up. My company took a big hit. Um, I didn't really know what I was going to do, but fortunately, I'd learned how to be resilient and I'd learned how to how to flex pretty quickly. Um, so I was able to to um, change my business around. But then I also recognized I need to. I'm feeling intellectually bored, uh, you know, and and it's feeling like my mind is getting lazy. Uh, so what can I learn now in order to uh, in order just to do something else for personal interest? So for me, that's something else is that I'm almost always studying something uh, or trying to learn about something that I don't currently know. Because I get, I don't know, maybe maybe other thinkers uh, have experienced this too. You just kind of get bored of the same concepts rattling around in your head after a while. I don't know. Maybe that was maybe that's just me, but it's like, yeah, I've thought that a million times before. Isn't there anything new out there that I can think? So so I'm always looking for more input. Um, so now I've been working on uh, a new project, trying to understand the learning basis of depression, you know, from a neurological perspective, uh, but also a psychological and a social learning perspective as well. How do we actually acquire the ideas that are central to depression? Um, so that's been occupying a, a significant amount of my time lately. I've been working with uh, studying with King's College London uh, to try to articulate that idea a bit more. So for me, it, it's a, it's almost always a learning or intellectual based endeavor uh, that I try to continue to grow. Awesome. So it's kind of it's kind of a reverse CBT or taking the principles of CBT as far as having these ideas can produce a better outcome. So if we have the negative outcome, what were the ideas they stemmed from originally? 
Yeah, you know, I, I like to I like to play with and mold ideas, you know. So if this is this is kind of the cognitive triad of thinking, feeling, and behaving that I'm playing with right now, what if we were to modify this one, the thinking piece, a little bit? I wonder how that's gonna uh change the spiral, uh what direction it's gonna take us in. So, you know, that comes with a certain uh not only creativity, but I think um curiosity and an intellectual openness to say, I don't know really where this is gonna go, but if I if I um, put some more input uh, into, if I feed some more data into this input, then I wonder what's going to happen uh, with the rest. Uh, and it's actually really cool to kind of uh, take a bit of a, a a step back and watch that happen in a way. It, it requires quite a a conscious uh, engagement with your own mind. Absolutely. And it requires that rest integration period, as you mentioned. It does. and And I think that that's a, Rest for me even is a very active part of the process because you're actively choosing uh, to say, I'm not going to do anything today. And to the outside world, that might look lazy or it might look uh, disconnected or disengaged. But when you're doing it from a place of intentionality, it takes on a whole different quality. Um, mainly for me, and I started doing that because I'm really hard on myself. Uh, I'm the first person to say, oh God, I was so lazy today. I didn't accomplish anything today. I, I didn't even send any emails today, heaven forbid. Uh, and for me, that's <laughs> something that I'm hard on myself about. But when I choose, I give myself the illusion of control and say, no, I am choosing to take a rest day because there's some. I'm working something through in my mind, for example, and it needs some time to breathe, to figure itself out. You know, I, I learned how to do that when I was writing the book. I went away to a Trappist monastery. I lived with the book, for the first draft anyway, for weeks and weeks and weeks on end, more than a month on end. I, I was living at the monastery. Uh, and what I noticed was that since I was writing for eight to 10 hours a day, every single day of the week, following the exact same schedule every day, that even when I would put the book away and I would go for a walk or I'd go to sleep or whatever, I was still writing in my head. Like I would do something, I'd write a chapter and then I'd leave it. But then I was still working it through and seeing it percolate and, and just doing it every day. I really got to, to um, value that part of the process as an active creation uh, to, to rest and to give space for it to gel. That's awesome, man. Well, that makes me, any, any author who can say that, you know, like I went to a monastery and worked on it for a month, tells me something about the quality of your book, right? And the intention you put into it and the care you put into it, because that's, that's really cool, man. I think I'm like, this is the skeptic mindset, right? This wasn't my mindset with your book, but any, anytime someone says, I write, I wrote a book, you know, you, you have to cross that barrier of whatever it is, like intellectual curiosity to be like, okay, I'm going to read the book, Yeah, you know, but that's a great line, man. I think that as far as on your promotion tour, for me, at least that's very, that was like, Oh, like that's, that sounds cool. You know, for me, <laughs> Because a lot of people write books, you know, and don't get me wrong. This was a bucket list type thing. Like this is something that five years ago uh, I, I wanted to do it, but I would never, I didn't even know how I was like, I, I don't like, that just seems like such an insurmountable thing, write a book, let alone a, you know, 300 plus page thing. And I, I wrote and I liked writing and I, I thought I was a pretty good writer, um, but I just didn't know how to do that. But then when you really get into it and, and I dedicated my whole self to it, I tried doing it off the side of my desk and it just wasn't working. So really just dedicating my whole life to it, it was transformative. There's no question, but it really gave me a vantage point, I think, and, and I hope it's not too 
pretentious, I guess, is the only word that comes to mind. But there's a lot of books out there that aren't. They're, they're marketing tools or they're stuff that I find them gimmicky. I find them mm. kind of too, it's like a paper thin kind of, you do this, this, and this, and suddenly you'll be yeah. happy. Uh, and that doesn't resonate with me. It's just, and and I think it came from just really seeing what I put into my book and, and just put my whole, and nobody else, I didn't hire somebody to write it for me. And not that there's anything wrong with that, I guess, but you know, I, I, I guess I'm just a purist when it comes to this kind of thing now, uh, with my vast experience of having written one book, uh, but, <laughs> <laughs> because there's so many other people out there who have done so much more of this. Um, but, you know, I, I look at the process that I put into it, and it's almost like you can spot the ones that maybe didn't go through through as much, uh, in, in my view. So I think that that is a good thing to look for, in, uh, or at least it's what I look for when I'm reading or when I'm um, talking to writers, is uh, how much of themselves did they put into this uh, and how much uh, development did they happen, uh, did they go through uh, in mm-hmm. this process? Uh, and I think that's what I tried to do with mine. Awesome, man. Awesome. Mark, we'll we'll pivot over to the the three things game. Sure. The last bit of the show is a, a knowledge and wisdom sharing game. It's a lot of fun. So we each get a question and we answer them separately. Okay. So which month is your birthday in? April. Okay. So you'll go first. Your birthday sooner. Here's your question. Okay. Should I re- should I read the question or should I? Yes, please. Okay. So what are three things you have learned about success? Success is overrated. Success isn't what you think it is. And success is a process, I think. Nice. What is success for you? What is success for me? Success for me is uh, whatever I currently feel successful at doing. Success for me is gratitude in the moment. (laughs) Yeah. Nice, dude. I like yeah. that. I think that's reflective of your don't plan life philosophy. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. it's funny because I've had so many people over the years who come to me and say, you know, something like, how can we, uh, how can I do what you do? How, how can I advocate on TV or newspapers or whatever for mental health? How can I do a TED talk? How can I write a book? And it's like, I'm the worst person in the world to ask because I don't know. I'm not an expert. I'm just making it up as I go here, folks. It's like, I just do it. And you don't see the thousand times that I fail. I just, because I don't post that stuff to my Facebook page most of the time. So, so it's like, I don't know. You just, um, you just do it. You wake up every morning and you do it. And then a few years later, you look back and you say, holy crap, look at what I've done. And that's a really cool experience to get to. Totally. Yeah, the, the the doers aren't necessarily writing books about how to do it. They're just executing. Just doing it. Yeah. 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 Awesome. Okay, here's mine. Okay, what are three things I've learned about listening? It's a skill that needs to be practiced, number one. Number two, I was lucky to have a natural knack for it. I think that a lot of people don't <laughs> don't have that natural gift, if you will. So I'm very grateful for that. And number three, it's very powerful, man. It's very, I mean, there's a, there's a reason that the phrase to be seen and heard is so poignant and important. And if you can give somebody the time of day and just listen to them, even if it's for five minutes, maybe that's the first time in a week, someone has actually looked them in the eyes and said, you know, it's shown them this is another human who's listening to you and your words have value. 
and your feelings have value and it goes a long way. So yeah, I would say it's, it's incredibly impactful and, and it's a good, it's a good skill to practice. Yeah. That's a great one. Awesome. Mark. Dude. Well, thank you so much. This has been a really lovely conversation. Where can the folks find your, your work and your book? My website is markhenick.com, M-A-R-K-H-E-N-I-C-K.com. I'm on uh, most social media platforms. I'm not hard to find. Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, YouTube, at Mark Hennick. Uh, and the book is so-called Normal, a memoir of family depression and resilience. That's available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Target, a bunch of other places. So uh, Google that and you'll be able to find that too. Awesome, man. Well, thanks so much and have a great rest of your day, Mark. All right. Thank you. You too. 